0: Hello and welcome to the 2021 season of AGM Watch, brought to you by the Australian Shareholders Association. Each year we monitor the performance of most of Australia's top 200 companies, protecting the rights of retail shareholders with a dedicated team of volunteer company monitors. Fiona Belzer is the Policy and Advocacy Manager at the ASA. Hi Fiona.
1: Hi Phil. Good to be back on AGM Watch.
0: I know, for the second year in a row. So we're going to be talking about the upcoming AGM season and especially what it means for members who have just gone through a period of, and I'm repeating the script from last year, we've gone through a period of COVID pain and unprecedented share market returns. What have you seen so far this year?
1: This year's been quite surprising after that pain. Markets have been strong. There's been a return to paying dividends, which is very well received by shareholders. And earnings for the 30 June reporting season were mostly well received, which given the level of uncertainty is quite surprising.
0: And considering most of our ASX 200 is miners and banks, I mean, there's a couple of reasons for those um, good returns really, aren't there?
1: Indeed. The banks, we have have seen them manage to navigate through well with miners. Various mineral prices are up and strong. It seems to be some of the parts that are working in the economy. And of course, we've seen selective retail outlets or consumer sector companies that have done well, while at the same time seeing companies that are facing real difficulties.
0: Last year, we were talking about COVID impacts, not realising that it would still be such a major issue this year. Have there been any changes to how companies have been affected?
1: Again, we're seeing a continued divergence. So, companies that have reliance on tourism, international tourism, cross-border tourism within the country, they are still doing it tough. They are having to maintain workforces in the hope that things will go back to some sort of new normal, which involves travel, and yet their revenue is being very much stop-start through the period. So Qantas, for example, are still facing disruptions, even though the hope is for a return of international travel. And then we're seeing other companies that have done really well, your JB Hi-Fis, some of the furniture companies, some of the shoe companies, doing really well as people in lockdown are shopping for particular sets of goods to make their living environment better or to take their daily walk. So very much you know, mixed impact and really reflective of the different ways we buy things and um, different businesses that have to continue operating while we're in lockdown. Transport, for example, is tricky. No longer is there a belly in the plane to fill, which meant that cost of moving goods around the world was a little bit cheaper. Now there has to be specific flights to move things in. So some transport companies where that's their only exposure to travel as such or flights, trucks, they're doing really well. And then others, you know, Flight Centre is still navigating its way into the new world.
0: Yeah, because we covered uh, Flight Centre last year, and um, that must be just in a kind of a, a zombie state at the moment.
1: It is a business that has always been quite mindful of how they do things. So I wouldn't say zombie so much as ready to return to action as soon as possible and also figuring out how they maintain their business while they're waiting.
0: And uh, CBA launched a $6 billion off-market buyback. Tell us about that. Oh, and Suncorp's declared special dividend.
1: Yeah, the banks really stepped in to assist customers at the start of COVID last year and had also been warned by their regulator, APRA, their Prudential Regulatory Authority, that they needed to keep their capital protected. So they were told to hold back on dividends. National Australia Bank took a different tack on that last year and raised capital, whereas the other banks didn't pay an interim dividend until much later in the year. They basically said no interim dividend and then they've been playing catch-up ever since. So the banks have found themselves with an excess of capital and they are returning it to shareholders because they no longer have to keep an extra large buffer because we've seen how we've been progressing through the pandemic and the regulatory authorities are much more comfortable that the banks will be able to make sure that at all times they can repay the people who've lodged money with them, the people who actually have deposit accounts with them and deal with all of their business in a safe manner. So yeah, a 6 billion off-market buyback. What this means is people who wish to sell their shares can look at the booklet which explains how this works. You bid for a price to sell your shares at, and usually it's a price less than the market price. The tax authorities limit that discount to 14%. And why would you want to share sell your shares for less than the share price in the market? It's because it comes with a very large attached franking credit. So depending on your tax situation, you will be able to get a better return if you participate in the buyback, but you must read the details to make sure you're one of those people who can benefit. And also be mindful that if you put in 100 shares, which is the minimum you can offer to sell, that'll be accepted by Commonwealth Bank. But if you're trying to sell 2,000 shares, the bank will most likely have to reduce the amount that they accept from you. So you'll have to not touch 1,000 shares until you find out, for example, that they've said, yes, we'll buy back 600 and you'll then be free to sell the 400 they haven't accepted.
0: Is that their way of deploying excess franking credits?
1: Yes, yes, it is. There are so many shareholders who can't use franking credits or have no benefit because of how the tax lies. And it's thought to be the most efficient way to return the excess capital. But of course, it's the group thinking that from ASA's side, we prefer everything to be on a per share basis. So what you call pro rata. So we would have much preferred a pro rata distribution, but We understand that they are able to get an advantage for the people who don't participate by buying back at a price that is less than the current market price. So they've weighed it all up and this is the way that they feel is best for the company and the shareholders to return the capital.
0: Now that um, we've been through several lockdowns, (laughs) the idea of virtual annual general meetings has gained greater currency, of course. But now there's legislation about how these AGMs are going to be run in the future, and um, the legislation regarding hybrid AGMs. What are you seeing in that space?
1: It's been an interesting time for AGMs. Shareholders' Association has long championed hybrid AGMs. We like the idea of being able to see the directors, look them in the eye, and hold them to account in a physical meeting. But we also like the idea of shareholders who are unable to attend the physical meeting being able to participate, not just to see a rerun of a webcast, but actually to be able to ask questions from wherever they are located. We have lots of shareholders who are living in remote from city locations and other people with mobility issues or they're employed so they can't take the time to physically attend the AGM. The hybrid AGM is just a really great way of reaching more people. So, We have been expecting a return to the normal company meetings since March last year, and we had been hoping for an increase in the hybrid format of meetings. The permanent legislation that's being proposed proposes a trial of the hybrid format for 12 months, and it's hoped that the more people who trial it, the better the experience will get, the better the technology, and... um, This legislation's been around for a number of months and was not passed by the Senate. So uh, we've had a resumption of the temporary legislation, which allows virtual-only meetings, and it's very much temporary, and it's related to the pandemic. The final date has been extended several times. I think originally it was September last year and then December. And we've now got an extension to the 31st of March 2022. And that just allows everybody to plan for their next AGM. Even though we don't want them to be exclusively virtual, it means that those companies that have to get their board together can put those in their diaries now. And there's also another temporary measure, which means that companies don't have to hold their meetings five months after their year end, it's seven months. So the 31st of March basically means that that covers all the companies that balance out to July.
0: Have you seen any hybrid meetings that have gone off exceptionally well, in your opinion?
1: I think what we're seeing, and we've attended a lot of hybrid meetings is that companies that are good at it, that have a chair who is really able to gauge the room and engage the people in the room and on the webcast, those meetings are good whether they're physical, hybrid or virtual. It's to do with the way they are managed. So AMP, for example, while it's gone through some really tough times operationally, has managed decent hybrid meetings. And we've seen some decent virtual-only meetings where they have taken the full two hours to have the meeting. And what we find really works well is the company organising for someone to moderate the questions, and this enables the curation of the meeting or how it's organised works a lot better because the chair of the meeting will ask for a question in the room, somebody introduces that person, and then somebody will read out, we have a question from the Australian Shareholders Association, and then they read out the question in full. So it just feels to everyone more like they're all participating in the same meeting. And that, I think, is one of the key features of a well-run hybrid meeting is to get the questioners' participation and engagement lifted. So when they ask their question, it's not read out in a routine fashion. It's very much, I want to know this and this is why I want to know it, and then you get the answer. And whether that's delivered by the moderator or by a person in the room, everybody within the audience can understand where that question is coming from.
0: Moving on to ESG, it's becoming so much more important and and it's almost a marketing tool for so many new product providers as well. But we'll just put that to one side for the moment. But ESG has been around for a long time and now it's hitting the cost of capital and branding, in your opinion.
1: Yeah. So ESG stands for environmental, social and governance issues. And we use it as a shorthand because environmental, social and governance is very hard to say repeatedly.
0: And they're three completely different things, really. I mean, they are interrelated, but um, it's a broad church that we're talking about here.
1: Yes, we are. And as you've mentioned, it's now hitting the cost of capital and uh, reputation and that means that even companies who felt they didn't have to worry about this yet, because we haven't reached the final reporting requirements for ESG. We have accounting standards for the accounting elements of annual reports, but there are a number of different standards for reporting ESG. And ESG in some ways is All those issues that will impact on the sustainability of the company you've invested in, and therefore the long term return to the shares that you hold, which you are perhaps holding for wealth building, which might mean that it's a shorter time frame than if you're holding them for superannuation. You may be building a portfolio that is expected to fund your retirement in 40 or 50 years time. So you need a company that has taken into account all the things that might impact its ability to run in perpetuity. Because the neat thing about companies is it's not their life isn't defined by the founder's lifetime, for example. It persists and becomes its own being. So in terms of the environmental concerns, A company can't operate if they violate the environment. Miners, for example, they have metrics they have to meet to be allowed to operate a mine, for example. They can't continue to exacerbate the wastefulness that we see in the world. There are a whole lot of elements that come under the E, of ESG and they are important for the company to be able to run. And even where we're only talking cost of capital and branding, there can also be other financial costs for violating the environment. And we all expect our companies to be good citizens and to not have what used to be called externalities because if you polluted a river, the company didn't wear the cost. Everybody below them on that river wore the cost and the overall environment wore the cost. So it became important to price that externality so you have environmental licenses and fines if you do not almost leave that river as you found it. On the social elements, we know, for example, that modern slavery is a real concern. It's surprising, but there are still people living in slave-like conditions. There's still companies that use child labor internationally and Those negatives can have direct connection to an Australian company where the supply chain has not been checked and routinely assessed for exposure to that element. And shareholders don't want to be making money off other people's pain. So it's important that the companies acquit themselves on... um, dealing with social issues appropriately and this modern slavery reporting required since last year as well. And on governance, we've always at ASA been quite strong on governance, making sure that the board oversights the executives and that the company hasn't doesn't have any negative cultural issues that will make them prone to failures or um, divert monies from where they should be going, you know, executives, fraud, all those sorts of things. So we've looked at G for a long time. We see ESG as the role of the boards and the executives to identify and manage and communicate the ESG risks, opportunities and strategy to shareholders One of the difficulties we have, as I mentioned, is we haven't got final reporting standards and also that what ESG looks like for one company will be different from another. It's very much case by case as to what is important to what the company needs to manage. And with that variability, it's tough for companies to equip themselves well and it's also tough for retail shareholders to say, This is how it should be done for each and every company. But retail shareholders can read as much as possible and also let the companies know whether their report and progress is up to the mark that they're expecting. And we expect that we'll have a greater deal of clarity as to what we should demand in the next couple of years from our companies. But companies too are improving how they address ESG. And you mentioned earlier that um, it's becoming a bit of a trend, and um, you know, there's the word greenwashing, which many people, when they say ESG is perhaps going too far, point to greenwashing as their evidence. But there are genuine attempts to address these sustainability issues, and we can call out anyone who has done this in a inauthentic way.
0: Mm. And there is pressure also applied from many fund managers and institutional investors these days as well. We don't often see this, but they're assessing companies on these metrics as well.
1: That's the bit that I find curious because ESG has been around for a long time. In the 90s, large fund managers were pushing on ESG issues. And because we haven't yet got this idea of a final standard metric, each of these fund managers would ask for different things from the companies. They would say, you know, we're a large investor. We need you to make sure that this is disclosed or that is disclosed. And each week I can remember going to a company with a request and they said, we've had 20 different requests in this last month and they're all different and only slightly different. And it became very, frustrating for the companies because it was so bespoke. So the institutional fund managers and others have been working to make sure that there is a lower cost of providing the information by concentrating on what information they need. So we have, for example, the TCFD, which is a reporting mechanism that works really well for mining companies, and many of our Australian companies will report against that. There are many other reporting frameworks and if you look at any of the sustainability reports, you'll see a huge database which compares them to various acronym standards. There's the GRI, there's SASB. It's worthwhile for retail shareholders having a look because this information has been published for some time, especially for your bigger companies that work in a global context because The Northern Hemisphere is so much further advanced than Australia is on their reporting requirements. And it's worthwhile having a look at all this information, which is there. But once we get a narrower standard, it'll be much easier for us to highlight, you know, where you should look, things you should look out for. At the moment, we're recommending people to have a read of their sustainability report and to look at what the biggest risk is and how the company says it's managing it and hold them to account as they report progress.
0: This week, uh, the press has been reporting about BHP Chief Executive Mike Henry's annual pay. It's more than doubled for the 2021 financial year, making him one of Australia's best paid bosses. How are we looking at these kind of, some would say, inflated executive remuneration situations?
1: I have a few comments on this because with our focus on the AGMs, especially large company AGMs, we will be looking at so many remuneration reports and we get to vote on those remuneration reports and any grants of the long-term incentives where you vote on them being issued and then several years later, if the hurdles are met, they vest as has been the case for BHP. But I'd also like to say, as one of Australia's largest companies and a large contributor to our GDP, I would expect BHP to have one of the highest paid bosses in the country. But it also shows you how tough reading the remuneration reports can get. Because that pay that's been announced is not the pay that starts with 2021. It is the pay that includes all the long-term incentives that have been issued since 2015. So five, six years of incentives have vested because the hurdles have been met. And even more tricky, this pay is the pay that's required by the United Kingdom's disclosures. So in Australia, it is not legally required to disclose what the actual remuneration and what we call take-home pay is for the CEO. We ask that the company includes it because we think it is important information to know how well the executives are doing out of the company that we have shares in, but it's not legally required. And what we would normally do is take the fixed remuneration, that is the monthly cash salary, the any short-term incentives that are paid, in the current year, and then each of the vesting long-term incentives. So the longer that you have a long-term incentive on foot, so five years, for example, you will get better value on the day that you vest those incentives because the share price has gone up from when it was issued.
0: So can you explain a little bit further how long-term incentives work, Fiona? Sure.
1: Sure. Usually a long-term incentive is based on a multiple of the annualised monthly salary and it'll be one times. And so for ease of the maths, let's say that's $1 million fixed remuneration and you get $1 million in incentives. And usually this is divided into a number of shares and the way The number is determined is you take the $1 million and divide it by a share price, current share price. So, you know, if it's $10, you get that many shares. Then each year, the incentives have a hurdle that has to be met. In some of the cases, you might lose $300,000 worth of the incentives because you've missed one year of meeting the hurdles. But at the end of the period, if you've passed all those hurdles, you get that number of shares. If the share price has doubled in that time, then the executive takes home $2 million rather than the $1 million amount allocated five years before. But, of course, the shareholders have also had the share price double. So in some ways it's sharing in the benefit of hopefully what is the efforts of the executives. And the other thing to remember with these amounts is we compare them to the average weekly earnings annualised, which is about 93000 and those multiples are quite high when you look at the wages, the executive salary. But when you look at it compared to the company's assets and the growth in the value of the company, they're hardly any percentage at all. So we do look at them in both ways, when we're trying to figure out whether it's reasonable or not. But back to BHP, another quirk is that the UK disclosures requires all of one of the incentives to be included, even though only a third of it is paid in the current year. So again, this points to why you need to read the reports.
0: It's not as simple as it first appears.
1: And it's not as um, beneficial as it first appears because under this one, BHP's noted that it'd only be 10 million, which it'd still be very nice to have, thank you very much, rather than 14 and a half million. So reading the reports, you need to read all the notes that attach to it as well. Headlines read nicely, and they're nice and simple, but quite often they're not the full story. And of course for BHP it's made more complex because back in 2015 and 2016 the share price had been trashed by the Samarco disaster which ended up with the previous CEO losing all his incentives in that year but Mike Henry wasn't in the CEO role at that time.
0: Mm. So again, we're going to be talking to some of the ASA's company monitors and about what they're looking at in the uh, AGM and the the reports and the voting intentions. And the first first one will be Peter Gregory and ASX, the company, not the exchange.
1: Which are, you know, one one and the same. same. (laughs) One and the same, but adds an extra layer of complexity to making statements about ASX because... We'll be looking at the company's performance and whether the remuneration is supportive of a positive culture for that performance. But we also need to look at how the exchange is operating as business. And um, it's probably one of the most tricky um, companies for us to look at because we're all interested in how the ASX operates as an exchange, which we all have our shares held through. And um, then we're also looking at how profitable they are and how efficient. And of course, they've got the CHESS replacement, which is an important infrastructure project that they are responsible for.
0: We can't wait for not getting those paper-based settlement um, notifications.
1: Yes, yes. We're all looking forward to uh, the CHESS confirmations coming electronically. And that is definitely on. There is a project and it will be delivered.
0: Okay, Fiona, thank you very much for joining me today and I look forward to speaking to you again at the end of the season for the the wrap-up.
1: Thanks, Phil. There's an awful long time and a lot of work to go before then, but I'll look forward to that one too.